Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 2016, the Walt Disney Company made a threat. They threatened to stop filming movies in the state of Georgia, along with their subsidiary Marvel, which is home to the likes of Guardians of the Galaxy, Black Panther, and Spider-Man. Oh, no. My friends are up there! What? Uh, don't worry, ma'am. Everything's gonna be okay. Excuse me! Excuse me! Oh, my God, that's tall. Some argued, though, that the bigger threat to Georgia was actually from a TV show, which also filmed in the state. It's a hit on the network AMC. It's called The Walking Dead. What are you doing? Come on! Just like Disney, AMC opposed a so-called religious liberty bill, which had cleared the Georgia House and the Senate. The bill said that religious leaders did not have to perform wedding ceremonies they didn't agree with and that faith-based organizations could refuse to serve people if they felt like it would violate their beliefs to do so. It was reported that the NFL might not want the Super Bowl in Georgia if the governor signed the bill, and the NCAA might not want to hold championship games in the state. So the governor, a Republican, was trapped between religious interests and companies with a lot of economic leverage. In the end, he vetoed the bill. It was a sign of the times, a time in which the power of business to shape politics is like nothing we've ever seen. Aaron Chatterjee is an associate professor at Duke University's Business and Public Policy Schools, and he has studied the increasing entanglement of politics and business. Aaron, thanks for joining me. Great to be here. Thank you. So uh, you write about how companies used to support what was once referred to as the Michael Jordan dictum. Explain that and why it was once the prevailing wisdom in business. Well, I think the conventional wisdom was uh, for a long time, why would you want to alienate you know, 50% of the country right. by taking on a really controversial issue? And we're not really sure whether Michael Jordan said that or not, but the notion uh, when he was asked to get involved in the political campaign and sort of uh, demurred mm-hmm. was the idea, well, why would you want to be controversial and turn off people who could, who could buy sneakers? Mm-hmm. And so I think that the you know, neutrality on especially controversial social issues and politics, that sort of carried the day. But companies, Kara, have always been involved on trade, on immigration, on mm-hmm. tax policy, things that directly affect the bottom line. I think what's new is this set of issues like the ones you talked about in Georgia and here in North Carolina. Right. And and with the issue of trade, like you said, it's really purely about money. But now it's things that like, why would Disney care about a religious liberty bill? Does that affect how well their movies sell? Maybe or maybe not, but it seems like it's kind of going outside what is directly involved with marketing that movie. That's right. The aperture is starting to open and the scope of, of business and their role in society is starting to widen. And because of that, you see businesses getting involved in religious freedom bills down to the details about transgender bathroom access, which right, was, right. happened in HB2, religious freedom in Indiana. And I agree with you that the scope of business involvement in politics has increased uh, in a big way recently, particularly with CEOs speaking out on these issues. Um, going back to North Carolina, where you're sitting right now, uh, remind mm-hmm. us what HB2 is. Sure. House Bill 2 in North Carolina. You know, House Bill 2 uh, contained a lot of different provisions. The one that actually drew most of the attention was around transgender bathroom access. And as people might recall, the city of Charlotte in North Carolina had passed an ordinance related to this, and the legislature uh, passed a law shortly thereafter, signed by then-Governor Pat McCrory. Well, HB 2 and, and transgender bathroom access became a giant issue. I would travel around the country, and people right. would, when I told people I was from North right. Carolina, they'd ask me what I thought about <laughs> HB 2. That became uh, the identifying which, feature it became of that, Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
we're, we're used to basketball, but now right, people right. ask us about HB2. Right. Uh, HB2 was later uh, revised. Uh, many people on both sides still frustrated with the current state of play. But that was an inflection point in this debate. And the NBA, the NCAA, uh, PayPal, Deutsche Bank, several other kinds of organizations heavily involved in lobbying the state against HB2. Is there a time in history, is there something you can pinpoint where you can say like, whoa, that was an inflection point where somebody stood up and what we considered normal in terms of taking a political stand changed? Well, I've tried to look at it in a historical perspective. And if you look at the turn of the 20th century, you had folks like J.P. Morgan getting mm-hmm. very involved in the U.S. economy, you know, bailing out the U.S. economy, mm-hmm. some people say. During the civil rights movement, companies like Coca-Cola in the 1960s were, were heavily involved. Uh, equally so in the, um, the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa in the mm-hmm. 1980s. But this recent wave of CEO activism, by my calculation, it really began with Tim Cook's statements uh, around Indiana's Religious Freedom Restoration Act. At least that's when it really came on the map for me. As you recall, that was a law in 2015 that was signed by then-Governor Mike Pence. As you know, that name might sound familiar. He's now the vice president. But uh, Tim Cook was one of the first business leaders to really speak out against that. And one week later, the law was revised. Also, you know, a year earlier, he had been on the cover of Bloomberg Business Week as, you know, coming out as gay. And that was a big Mm -hmm. uh, sort of moment as well. So while he's reserved and quiet, perhaps, in his demeanor, he's taken some pretty big steps as the CEO of Apple. So what do you feel like, you know, you talked about this move on Apple's part, but we've seen Patagonia speaking out uh, and actually suing the Trump administration on behalf of uh, federal lands, you know, trying to preserve uh, federal lands, and not make them privatized. We've seen the CEO of Chick-fil-A speak out and say, I don't believe in gay marriage. We've seen the CEO of Hobby Lobby say, I don't want to you know, support the morning after pill for for my employees. You could go on and on. How has this just kind of blown up and become something that so many CEOs now are willing to take a stand on at the risk of alienating huge swaths of people who are their customers? You know, Kara, I think it's something we're, we're trying to understand right now because it's happening very quickly. But my best guess is the following. One is that, at least for LGBTQ-related issues, a lot of businesses have settled these issues inside the corporate halls in the 1990s and early 2000s. You know, a lot of these companies had subscribed to non-discrimination policies long before they were debated uh, in states like North Carolina, Indiana, Texas, and and around the country. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is I think companies felt a little more comfortable speaking out because it was sort of settled law inside a lot of companies. And that's an interesting divide you'll see, you know, particularly as it relates to diversity. There's a lot more concern census inside corporate America, at least on the books, than there might be outside corporate America, as you see in these state legislatures. So I think Mm -hmm. that was the first thing. Mm -hmm. The second thing, which is a little more subtle, is, you know, we've documented this political polarization that's really gripping the United States of America, where Republicans and Democrats are deeply divided, conservatives and liberals are deeply divided, and we're seeing much more ideological sorting, where we're all kind of retreating to our own camps and our own echo chambers. Mm -hmm. And in that kind of world, Kara, everything becomes political. And so companies are sort of being forced to respond often on social media to the hot button issue of the day. And they're sort of, you know, feeling a lot like our politicians do in Washington mm-hmm. now, the same way they deal with it. So that's where I see a lot of the CEO activism coming from, too, just a progression of this politicization uh, of American life. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Aaron Chatterjee, an associate professor at Duke, about how and why some CEOs and companies are starting to take part in social activism. So talk to me a little bit about the bottom line for these companies. Have there been companies that have suffered from positions they've taken, that have benefited from positions they've taken? They've taken these big stands, and then what happened? 
<laughs> well, you know, the cautionary tale of Starbucks, uh, who is who is lampooned by John Oliver and lots of others for their pretty idealistic uh, race together campaign. You'll recall this is when Howard Schultz asked uh, sort of people to write race together uh, on the coffee cups to have a conversation or spark a conversation about race. And while it might have sounded good on paper or on a coffee cup, as it were, uh, in execution, there was a lot of pushback. And, and both from the left side and the right side of the political mm. spectrum, people said this isn't a good idea. And they discontinued it nearly a week later. So it didn't even have very long shelf life. Papa John's CEO recently spoke out against uh, the NFL anthem protests, uh, arguing the NFL should have managed that much better. He's no longer going to be the CEO of Papa John's and, mm. and received a lot of blowback from that. So you're seeing companies and the executives who speak out certainly suffer uh, when things don't go their way. You're also seeing companies try to fix those mistakes. If you see Under Armour and the CEO, Kevin Plank, if you recall, he made some pretty mild statements praising President Trump uh, mm. recently. Steph Curry, one of the major endorsers, if not the mm-hmm. major endorser for Under Armour, took issue with that. Mm-hmm. And Plank was forced to run a, a full-page ad in the Baltimore newspaper uh, clarifying their position. So I think mm. you see companies really uh, getting burned by this, trying to come back from it. Some other companies, I think, are you know trying to capitalize on this. You see that with Lyft that donated a million dollars to mm. the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, and uh, all those companies trying to seize the moment and the opportunity to be activists. So you see it coming from both angles. Have you seen companies where they took a stand on whatever issue and sales went up? Like clearly people are like, I like that stand and I'm going to eat your sandwiches or drink your coffee <laughs> or buy your sweatshirts or whatever. Well, it is the million-dollar question, and and it's very difficult to to attribute an increase in sales to a particular stance. Mm -hmm. The two things we have on this, uh, my own study with Professor Mike Toffel at the Harvard Business School does find that when Tim Cook spoke out about religious freedom in Indiana, people's intent to buy Apple products, not their actual purchasing, but their intent, did increase. And it seemed to be associated with the idea that uh, Tim Cook had spoken out on an issue they cared about. Mm -hmm. But to tell you the truth, we still don't have uh, any systematic evidence that speaking out will always lead to an increase in sales. It probably depends on the context, the issue, Mm -hmm. and the CEO herself in terms of what's going on. And certainly, I mean, I know like Howard Schultz back like five years ago uh, was very pro-gay marriage um, and spoke out against an investor who said, you know, I I don't think you should be taking a stand on this issue. And it it may not have done anything great for Starbucks, but Starbucks uh, is doing very well as a company. Like it didn't seem to have hurt it doesn't seem to have hurt Starbucks. It doesn't seem to have hurt uh, other companies that have taken stands. I mean, Apple, look at them. Right, uh, right. You know, it does not, doesn't seem to have hurt, hurt them at all. Yeah, yeah. And Kara, I'll tell you another thing. Uh, you know, I'm currently teaching a class on um, on these topics, including a case on CEO activism. And I find my students, who are mostly millennials, they predominantly, not all, seem to be very open to CEOs taking these stands. And mm-hmm. they think that millennial purchasing behavior might be different than the older generations. Mm-hmm. The idea that some of these things that CEOs are talking about might really resonate with millennial customers and even more importantly, as potential employees of these companies. And so it could be that this new generation is going to introduce a new dynamic into the costs and benefits of CEO activism. So often it seems like these stances are taken very quickly, right? They're responding to events in the news. It could be uh, the travel restrictions uh, from President Trump, or it could be the pullout from the Paris Climate Accords. And I wouldn't think that there would be a lot of sort of internal or external polling and people thinking like, Okay, if we take this stand, are people going to buy our yogurt? I mean, it just does not sound like (laughs) that's what they're doing. 
not to my knowledge, Kara, you know, there could be uh, super secret efforts inside these companies to do that. What I would say is I would bet on that being the way of the future because as companies seek to collect a lot of data on us and we seem to be willing to give it to them, I imagine that our political uh, interests and particularly how salient politics is to us, how much it matters to us, is going to matter a lot to them. You know, if you think about what makes you want to buy a car uh, or any kind of product, it's your identity, how it makes you feel. And if mm-hmm. politics is a big part of how we feel, when the politics is going to be a big topic of interest for the data gurus at these large branded companies. And so I see that happening more and more. And maybe a year from now, we'll be having a very different conversation. It's interesting, though, that you say they are not now doing a lot of polling because even though CEOs have not been obviously elected by voters, they seem to have tremendous political power, at least in certain cases. And I wonder if you think like CEOs are able to change policy. And I because I feel like we are seeing it happen in real time. Well, Kara, I think the answer is yes, they're able to influence policy. You know, they've always been able to through lobbying and campaign contributions, but now they have this additional mechanism, which is, you know, to speak out on these laws publicly right. to massive social media audiences and also use economic leverage, as you yeah. mentioned with Disney and AMC and, of course, PayPal and Deutsche Bank here in North Carolina, Apple and Angie's List in Indiana. We've seen mm-hmm. it time and time again. I will say two things. One is uh, for folks, particularly who feel like their voices aren't being heard, this kind of uh, display of CEO power is exhilarating. They feel like mm-hmm. someone's standing up for them where you know, the democratically elected representatives are, are going in a different direction. But others, uh, and regardless of political persuasion, but many others, I think, also feel queasy about it for the reasons you talked about. No one's elected these CEOs to, to get involved on social issues. And mm-hmm. so, at least for my students and people I've talked about with this topic in depth, I mean, there's this interest in, well, you know, are we giving corporations too much power by encouraging CEO activism? And I think that's a legitimate topic uh, of discussion as well. Um, do you worry that we kind of risk further polarizing the country if we become a place where there's already lots of differences, obviously, between Republicans and Democrats in states that vote in different ways. But, you know, if Democrats are like, well, I'm not going there and I'm not doing this and Republicans feel the same way. And so you get, you know, Democrats drinking their coffee at Starbucks and wearing Patagonia and Republicans are eating at Chick-fil-A and shopping for crafts at Hobby Lobby. And like, even the things that could bind us together, like the experience of the everyday where we shop, even that is different. And nobody even goes to the same stores as anybody else. Yeah, Kara, you've hit on something really important that's already happening. We're already sorting by the neighborhoods we live in, the types of schools we attend, mm-hmm. the types of products we buy. You know, there's a recent paper uh, in a sociology journal called Why Liberals Drink Lattes. And it's a really great, <laughs> it's, a, and it's a really great article because what it, it points out is drinking a latte or wearing camouflage, these things aren't traditionally or anywhere tied mm-hmm. to being a liberal or conservative. They have nothing to do with political ideology. But we're all adopting these markers of our political affiliations to kind of fit in more with the group that we identify with. And that's where our social media feeds are being dictated by, uh, our neighborhood conversations and coffee chats. And so you're right, as we see these inflection points where companies are going head-to-head with state legislatures, and in the cases we've talked about, it's primarily companies espousing the progressive side of the spectrum in terms of the the issue and Mm -hmm. conservative legislatures that are led by Republicans, you could potentially see more division. On the other hand, with folks that I've raised this with, particularly on the progressive side, they've said, well, look, these are fundamental human rights, and these companies are committed to diversity, and Mm -hmm. they ought to be fighting for these these things whether they do business and whatever they can have leverage. And so Mm -hmm. I see, again, depending on your political lens, it really depends on how you look at CEO activism, which I found to be very interesting. Aaron Chatterjee is an associate professor at Duke. He has studied the increasing collision between politics and business. 
Aaron, thank you so much. Thank you. On our website, we'll have a few other stories of business getting tangled up in politics, like the saga of Ivanka Trump and Nordstrom. And we'll link to our own discussion about the curious tale of Charles and David Koch, owners of Koch Industries, who are some of the most politically active business owners out there. That's all at innovationhub.org.